So essentially they could do this for a short period of time, but then they would use up all the patient's veins and then, you know, you're done basically. Um, so it was when the shunt was invented in the 1960s that there was a huge change because for the first time they were able to do chronic dialysis. And of course the AV fistula, which has become the standard of care, uh, was invented in the 1960s. Uh, in 1972, Medicare actually passed a bill to be covered for individuals less than 65 with end-stage renal disease to cover 80% of their cost of dialysis. Um, at that time, there were probably about 7,000 end-stage renal disease patients in the United States. And from the reading I've done, they thought within a couple years there would be you know, national health coverage, presumably to cover all this, which obviously <laughs> has not been the case. So that 7,000 that, you know, when Medicare first started co covering end-stage renal disease has ballooned to nearly 400,000 now, and it takes up 13 billion of Medicare dollars, so it's a very significant um, portion of your Medicare money. Um, in terms of causes of end-stage renal disease, diabetes uh, leads the pack over 35%. Uh, hypertension is 30%, but um, up to 40% among African Americans, certainly the most common uh, cause that we see on the south side of Chicago. Also glomerulonephritis, uh, collagen vascular disease, this is like lupus, scleroderma, Wegner's. Hereditary diseases such as polycystic kidney disease, Allport's disease, um, obstructive uropathies, HIV, and then nephrotoxins such as aminoglycosides and amphotericin. I'm just gonna briefly talk about the access for dialysis as most, I'm sure all of you know, fistulas, grafts, and uh, catheters. The AV fistula. Um, is the gold standard in hemodialysis access. It's an endocide vein to artery anastomosis. The kind of disadvantage to fistulas, it takes a long time for them to mature and before you can actually use them for dialysis access, two to four months. But it has a much lower rate of thrombosis than say grafts and a lower rate of secondary failure um, and infection. But a significant portion of these may never actually end up functioning. Up to 50% of them will have primary failure. So. Obviously very frustrating if you're a patient, you go through the surgery, you wait four months, and then it's kind of 50-50 if it's gonna work for you or not. Um, synthetic grafts is just basically a, a Gore-Tex connection between the vein and artery. The advantage of this is it can be used actually right away. Um, low rates of primary failure, but higher risks of infection and thrombosis. And then dialysis catheters. These are the least preferred method um, for dialysis access of the extremely high risk of infection, which is up to you know, a third of all patients that have these will get an infection. Uh, the preferred site is the right IJ, just because subclavians have been associated with higher risk of thrombosis. Um, and these obviously have the highest risk of infection. Um, this risk has been somewhat reduced now that the standard is to go with the tunneled cuffed catheters versus, you can see here, like the temporary catheters. This would be what you might pop in the ER, like a quintin on a patient that needs to have acute dialysis. Um, which would be going in the right IJ versus the tunneled catheter on the right. Um, in terms of things that patients can present to the emergency department directly from dialysis complaining of, hypotension leads the group. Up to half of patients will have, in up to half of dialysis sessions, patients will have hypotension. So this is extremely, extremely common. Just because you're losing, you know, there's large fluid shifts. It's, you know, very, very common that patients will come in hypotensive, which will revolve, resolve with time or with a little IV fluids. Um, cramps, nausea, vomiting, headache, a lot of this is associated with the high removal of uh, urea in the patients. 
So I'm just, there's like a few cases spread out here. And, and at UFC, when we do this, they're very interactive. So everyone feel free to jump in or if you've got questions, ask them too. Um, but in this case, a 64-year-old female is coming in, history of end-stage renal disease, of course, complaining of not feeling right. And here she tells you she's missed dialysis for a week. So what type of tests would you order on a patient like this? What are you worried about? Right, 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 exactly. So in worrying, you're going to obviously check um, a BM, basic metabolic panel on the patient. And what other tests do you want to get done? EKG, right, exactly. Um, and then what kind of treatments would you use for the patient? So say the potassium comes at, back at 7.5. How would you treat that? Right, perfect. Great, great, yeah. So I'm just gonna run through kind of hyperkalemia. This may be a huge review for a lot of you guys. Um, maybe some of the interns aren't as familiar with the treatment of hyperkalemia. But your kidneys are responsible for excreting 90 to 95% of your potassium. And clinically, patients don't have manifestations until their potassium is usually greater than seven. And what you can see is just weakness, paralysis, ileus, and then, of course, the dreaded, you know, dreaded complication of cardiac conduction abnormalities. Um, your potassium is actually responsible for setting the resting membrane of um, the cells. And actually, initially, the cells are hyper-excitable, but then with time, the sodium channels get inactivated, so the cells actually become less excitable, which causes all the cardiac abnormalities that you fear. And as was mentioned, uh, tall peak T waves cannot... Um, often be the first sign that you see, which is demonstrated on this EKG here. Um, and if you see tall peak T waves, would you treat that? Most people. You know, yeah, actually an up-to-date, they say just for peak T waves alone, you don't have to give calcium, but I think anyone would. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't think most people would wait. If, if they saw any EKG changes, they'd probably just give calcium anyways. With time, you can see lengthening of the PR interval and wider QRS, which can um, progress into the sine wave that you always hear about. And then, of course, you always worry about V-fib. Um, so especially for us, yeah, patients that come in, I don't know, at UFC, if a patient comes in in cardiac arrest and PEA, whatever, like calcium's just like, it's like epiatropine calcium because there's so many end-stage renal disease patients. And it's one of the few things you can do that actually will bring a patient back. So you're always like looking to see if you can find like a fistula or dialysis access on all these patients. And then briefly in terms of treatment, so you want to, um, as we were talking about with the calcium, antagonize the membrane effects, get the potassium intracellular, and then eventually get it out of the body. So I'm just going to talk about these each briefly. Actually, the mechanism by which calcium antag antagonizes the uh, effects of hyperkalemia is poorly understood. They're not really sure why, but... It's been shown time and time again to do it. So any patient with EKG changes, you do it. Um, this is the most rapid in terms of the treatments for hyperkalemia. This has the quickest onset of action. You can either do calcium gluconate or calcium chloride. Calcium chloride has three times the amount of calcium, but theoretically you should be doing that through a central line. It's very irritating to the skin. Calcium gluconate is more suitable for peripheral IVs. And then, of course, this, this is like such a standard boards question. I know I've seen it a few, like at some point in your career, you will get this question because a patient will come in, and a lot of these patients obviously have heart failure as well. They're all on digoxin. Um, you'll come in, the patient has, you know, potassium of 7.5 with peak T waves and widened QRS, and 
you want to give them the calcium because you know it's the right answer and you get all excited, but you always have to be sure you check the DIG level. And you know, what precipitated them to be hyperkalemic may be worsening renal failure, which also could cause them to hang on to digoxin. And if you give them calcium, you risk putting them into a fatal cardiac arrhythmia. So you definitely don't want to give calcium. So before you push calcium, always ask the patient if they're on DIG. And if they are, I would wait until the level's back unless the patient's actively crashing. Insulin glucose drives potassium into cells um, utilizing a sodium potassium ATPase pump. Um, typical dose is 10 units of regular insulin plus an AMPA D50. This starts working within 15 minutes. So um, besides calcium, this is the fastest, fastest acting uh, treatment for hyperkalemia and peaks at about 60 minutes. Sodium bicarb, um, by raising the pH, it switches hydrogen for potassium, which also drives potassium into the cells. Um, begins within 30 to 60 minutes and it works much better in patients that have a metabolic acidosis. And in a minute, I'll discuss these in relation to patients with end-stage renal disease, but essentially, sodium bicarb does not work well at all in patients with end-stage renal disease, so there's really no point in even giving it. Beta agonists um, drives potassium into cells also using a sodium potassium ATPase. I don't know if you guys, we have a lot of asthma also where I work and you know, patients will sit in the ER in continuous nebs for four hours. They're not clearing, you decide, okay, fine, we gotta bring them in the hospital and the admitting team always wants you know, your standard labs and they'll come back with a potassium of like two because <laughs> they've been sitting on uh, nebs for so long. Um, it's typically given, you know, here you can give it 20 milligrams over 10 minutes through a neb. And you can actually also do epi infusions as well. In terms of diuretics, obviously these just aren't going to work well on patients with end-stage renal disease. They have poor ability to make urine baseline. Maybe in a, a new, newer diagnosed patient that can make a bit of urine, this might be effective, but it's probably not going to work as well. And then, of course, K-exalate, as I heard mentioned earlier, this is your best way to get potassium out of the body um, if short of dialysis. It's going to absorb your potassium. It can be given either orally or as a rectal enema, but I don't know. You see the nurses would not give an enema, <laughs> like they say they don't, so I don't know if they, if they would here. You're probably best to go with the oral route. Yeah, I just don't even ask, I don't. I, I've heard other people ask and it was not pretty, so. <laughs> um, this has a longer onset of action before it's gonna start working. It has been in the past described as causing intestinal necrosis, but all these studies were done on patients that were post-op, so they probably had an ileus because they're coming out of surgery, they're on lots of pain meds, so it's not transitioning through their gut very well, and it can be, in that case, associated with intestinal necrosis. But otherwise, I mean, you're fine giving it in any other patient. And then, of course, dialysis is also a fantastic way to uh, remove potassium for the body. You use this when basically all the conservative measures you took aren't working if the hyperkalemia is very, very severe, and if you've got lots and lots of tissue breakdown and you're worried about you know, continued potassium production, essentially. Um, a study was done, this was like back in the 80s, and they actually took 10 patients during dialysis, like before and after dialysis, just looking at these four agents and seeing what um, the treatment did in terms of lowering their potassium level. And as I alluded to earlier, sodium bicarb is basically ineffective on these patients. The epi had a, a slight reduction, but that was only found in half of the patients. Um, your best bet is insulin glucose and obviously dialysis.
And they recommend any patient, obviously, in stage renal disease, prevention is better than getting them to the point where you're trying to, to treat the um, hyperkalemia. So low potassium diets, you don't want to be starting these patients on ACE inhibitors, obviously. Um, and then minimize episodes where they're not eating, <clears throat> which would be more of an issue, like if you were treating surgical patients. Pulmonary edema, patients coming in complaining of shortness of breath, fluid overload is obviously very common in end-stage renal disease patients. Um, this would be, you know, you can ask patients what their dry weight is, what they usually weigh, and kind of compare it to where they're at today. If they've got more than five pounds on them, there's a good chance they're going to have some fluid in their lungs. Um, chest x-ray, obviously physical exam, everything that suggests to you that their um, lungs are full of fluid, and example of an x-ray of that. So that patient needs dialysis. <laughs> the answer is he just needs dialysis. <laughs> um, okay, how about this case? A 47-year-old fee? Yeah. A lot of times I find these people respond to nitro. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah. And BiPAP them if you need to, exactly, until you can get, right, that's totally true. Um, here's a 47-year-old female history of end-stage renal disease coming, coming in complaining of chest pain, and she's got like a low-grade fever, like 38-1. So what, are, what further history do you want? What kind of things are on your mind in a dialysis patient with chest pain and low-grade fevers? Either, she has either. Any access you want. So obviously infection's always on your mind. So yeah, I'll give you that. What about specifically if they're saying chest pain? Right, right. High risk, we'll talk about that later. Obviously, with 50% mortality from cardiac causes, that's always on your mind. Um, how about if she says the chest pain is worse when she lays recumbent? Does that help? Pericarditis, yeah. So there's two types of pericarditis that you can see in dialysis patients. Uremic pericarditis, and this is usually in patients that are just starting on dialysis. Um, 8 to 16% of patients before they start on dialysis with their first episodes will have a case of pericarditis versus dialysis-associated pericarditis. These are patients chronically on dialysis. Um, up to 15% of those can actually with time get pericarditis. And it's kind of somewhat similar to when you think of pericarditis in any other patient. Fever, pleuritic, chest pain, they feel better leaning forward, a pericardial rub on exam. But what's unique is the EKG will not show the typical diffuse ST elevations that you're used, of, used to in any other patient with pericarditis because um, there's a lack of uh, the inflammatory cells don't get into the pericardium as well, and for whatever reason, they don't get the ST elevation. And up to half of these cases of pericarditis have an associated pericardial effusion, and then, of course, you always worry about a pericardial tamponade. So what things would make you worry about a tamponade on a patient like this? David D. Hypotension, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. So this EK, this is a huge heart. Obviously, if you see that this is abnormal, but in a lot of patients, you know, if, especially if the fluid accumulation is really rapid, you won't see this huge expansion. This is a pericardial effusion that's happened over a long course of time, which in dialysis patients, actually, they could have this because they could have baseline a small pericardial effusion that's just getting bigger and bigger over time. But a normal x-ray obviously does not rule it out. The EKG, um, any EKG you get on a patient that's got low voltage like this, you should just throw a probe on their chest. It's just easy enough to make sure there's no big 
effusion. And then, of course, you always hear about electrical alternans. Um, I've actually had a patient with this where the heart's swinging within the pericardium, and you can see the change in voltage. And then, of course, the, the echo is just the best thing to do on these patients, and it would be very evident if they've got a big pericardial effusion. So in terms of treatment, um, if there's no evidence of tamponade, you just should start dialysis on these patients. And they can have their pericardial effusion actually for weeks, and they can just follow it over the course of weeks, do serial echoes, and with time it should resolve. They also recommend doing heparin-free dialysis because you obviously don't want to bleed into this um, effusion that you've got. NSAIDs don't do much. They just basically reduce fever in these patients, but high-dose steroids are thought to potentially be beneficial. And then, you know, I, yeah, I wouldn't. They're, they're saying it's ineffective on it except for t fever reduction, so just give them Tylenol instead. Yeah. I mean, their kidneys are shot. Yeah, it, it honestly, it's just for fever reduction, so you could go, you could go either way. Um, if there is tamponade, so if, if there's not tamponade, the last thing you want to, if there is tamponade, the last thing you want to do is dialyze them and take off fluid when they're dependent on, you know, their bl circulating blood volume, because then you're going to have certain cardiac collapse. Um, but the, you know, the exciting emergency department procedure is when these patients come in, they've got tamponade, they need something done fast. So have you guys done pericardiocentesis on patients? You have? You want to describe how you did it? Just. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Great. Yeah, and you can actually do echo during, and you can watch as, and just to help you make sure you don't actually stab the right ventricle. You can wait and see when the needle is entering the uh, pericardial space and, and drain fluid that way. But yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, so this is just a picture describing exactly what you said. Um, you're basically 
to, supposed to go at a 45 degree angle to the mid-sagittal plane and then at a 45 degree angle to the abdominal wall, um, retracting as you go. And definitely I would recommend doing it under ultrasound. And I think in the past, any patient that came in, at least at UFC with PEA, like as part of the full, you know, as you're putting in, you're needling both sides of the chest, they would do a lot of, you know, practice pericardiosynthesis. But with the ultrasound, you know, you don't need to do that. You just throw the probe on. If you, if you don't see any fluid, there's obviously no reason for you to be sticking a needle in there. Heart. The diagram also shows that uh, technique of uh, having the, the precordial lead and the needle. To right, right. Yeah, so it can help. That's, if you don't want to do ultrasound, you can use EKG guided to find out when you're, if you're entering the heart. <laughs> and obviously the big risk of this procedure is laceration of the right ventricle. And then in the last case, if, if you see big tamponade, um, but there's no circulatory collapse yet, this is when you need to get um, surgeons involved. Two procedures they can do, a sub-xiphoid pericardiotomy, this is done under local anesthesia, works very, very well. Um, and then the definitive procedure is the pericardiectomy, which, you know, obviously once that's done, it's, it's never going to return again, but high morbidity and mortality from putting these patients under general anesthesia and doing a thoracotomy approach. So briefly, I want to talk about coronary artery disease, um, huge cause of the mortality in these patients, over half of them die from this. And the CHOICE study just showed, and I mean, it makes perfect sense. Everything that gave these patients end-stage renal disease is also going to put them at extremely high risk to have coronary artery disease and heart attacks. Um, diabetes was present in 54% of these patients. 96% of them had hypertension. Low HDL, LVH, and anemia all contribute as well. And actually, end-stage renal disease alone is thought to be an independent risk factor for coronary artery disease. And they carry a high ACS incidence at about 3% per year. And then in terms of following cardiac enzymes, I don't know, which, which troponin do you guys have here? We have, cardiac troponin I is the preferred method, um, isn't falsely elevated, theoretically, falsely elevated in patients with end-stage renal disease. Unfortunately, we have troponin T at my hospital, so every end-stage, you get T here? Yeah. So every end-stage renal disease patient has an elevated troponin, but the important thing is to just trend it out, see where their troponins always lie, and see which way the troponin's going, essentially. Um, and CKMB can also be elevated in these patients as well. The best marker, cardiac enzyme marker for an MI in a, in a patient would be a troponin I. Air embolism, um, apparently with the advent of the new dialysis apparatus, they, this is much, much cut down from what it was in the past. These patients come in shorter breath to kipnic, complaining of chest pain, hypotensive, and then cardiac arrest. Um, I think this would be a pretty tough diagnosis to make unless someone from dialysis is telling you something, something wasn't clamped or something went wrong and there's a high uh, level of suspicion for an air embolus. Um, you just want to clamp their axis, put them on their left side with their head and chest tilted down, 100% oxygen and also hyperbaric oxygen has been proposed as a treatment. I think this would be a pretty tough diagnosis to make though. Okay, how about a guy coming in with a bleeding dialysis site? What would you guys do here for that? So he was dialyzed, and it's an hour afterwards, and it's still bleeding. They just they can't get it to stop bleeding. Dialysis site from like the AV fistula or from like a pro? So it could be a fistula or a graft. Was we'll say not a catheter right now. Okay, you can put some uh, that uh, surgical on it and try to ease out with a little bit of pressure. Is that what you guys do here? Pretty close to me. 
Yeah. Um, typically, the the best thing you can do for these patients is just try direct pressure, and you don't you know you don't want them holding. Have the patient do it because this can take a long time. You don't want them holding their whole arm over it though because you don't want them to you know clot off their fistula or you know you don't want to put an ACE wrap around a fistula or around a graft. So it's more like finger pressure directly over the area that's bleeding. And in the vast vast majority of cases, this will resolve the bleeding with time. If they're holding you know good localized direct pressure, it should take care of it. Um, protamine has been proposed. Theoretically, you can suture it. At my institution, you know, this is all what I've done in, in talking with attendings at my institution. No one's actually done this without consulting vascular surgery first. And certainly, if you can't get it controlled with direct pressure, you can give, you know, vascular surgery a quick call because the last thing you want to do, you know, is obviously mess up their graft <coughs> or fistula and have problems. So make sure you don't use a cutting needle. Right. Okay, and then how about this case where the, you know, the dialysis access isn't working? Right, yep, so you can do a thrombolysis with a urokinase or something. Um, sometimes these patients, uh, you see they'll go to IR a lot and get like an angioplasty, um, or as a last line resort, you can do a surgical thrombectomy. All right, and this, we kind of alluded to this earlier. So you've got an obviously infected dialysis site. Uh, what type of antibiotics would you guys use in a case like this? Broad spectrum? Yeah, I think everyone now, I don't know what your guys' MRSA incidence is here, but high, is it high? Yeah, so you just use Vank. And then um, you should also add on like Gent or third generation cephalosporin. Um, we alluded to this earlier. Gram-positive organisms are going to be, you know, skin organisms are going to be the most common cause. And then do vanc and gen. And typically, this will be a treatment that goes on for three to four weeks with with each dialysis section and session. And hopefully, you know, they can. If it doesn't clear over time, unfortunately, the patient's going to lose their access. <coughs> so, if a patient comes to the emergency department after being at dialysis, having seizures, there's a, a whole list of things that could be causing it. Uremic encephalopathy. This would typically be seen in patients that are just starting on dialysis, especially if there's a really high degree of um, urea removal in these patients. So this would be more early, early dialysis patients. If it's later on, you should think of something else. Dialysis disequilibrium syndrome, which I'll touch on in just a minute. Drugs such as EPO, um, that EPO can cause hypertension, which uh, will lead to seizure. Also, you don't want to give dialysis patients Demerol because you can have um, accumulation of the toxic metabolite uh, normopyridine. Hemodynamic instability, you know, with all the fluid coming off, these patients are having wide swings in their um, circulating blood volume. Dialysis dementia, which also apparently has been way, way cut in incidence. In the past, aluminum, if there was aluminum in the water, actually a lot of these dialysis patients, unfortunately, would get dementia from that. These patients are at high risk for TIAs, CVAs, subdurals, bleeds in general, and then, of course, electrolyte disorders and the air embolism we referred to earlier. So dialysis disequilibrium syndrome um, is believed to be secondary to cerebral edema, typically seen, in, again, in patients just starting on dialysis, patients with huge BUNs, over 170, within 12 hours of dialysis. And it's thought to be caused by a reverse osmotic shift. As you can imagine, 
dialysis is removing all these solutes, setting up a gradient where um, extra fluid is flowing into the brain, causing cerebral edema. And the this clinical manifestations can really run the gamut from just a headache, you know, up to death, and kind of everything neurological in between. So just have this type of thing. You just need to have a really high index of suspicion in a patient that's just starting on dialysis, essentially. The way that it's been prevented is by doing, you know, kind of kinder, gentler dialyses. Um, slow urea removal instead of trying to take it all off initially has helped cut down on it. And if one of these patients is coming in with seizures, they recommend giving like a 5 cc bolus of quarter normal saline, which helps reestablish that uh, gradient so to reduce the uh, influx of fluid into the um, brain. And then also you can try mannitol. And then I'm just going to skip a couple of these because we're getting so low on time. These are kind of more random things that you could see in these patients. Uh, briefly, I just want to talk about peritoneal dialysis. So this is 17% of dialysis patients in the United States, um, but this is in big contrast. In Mexico, it's 91% of all dialysis patients are actually peritoneal dialysis, and in England, it's like 50-50. So it's a, it's a pretty low number, actually, in the United States, and they're not really sure why, perhaps because in the United States, a lot more of these younger patients are getting uh, transplants, and that may be part of the issue. But it basically has, a, you have a plastic catheter in the peritoneal, cavity, patients are able to dialyze themselves at home, oftentimes a couple dialysis sessions over the course of the night when they're sleeping. And the dreaded complication of peritoneal dialysis obviously would be peritonitis uh, with cloudy abdominal fluid, abdominal pain, fever. And you would do the same type of workup. It's diagnosed by looking at the peritoneal fluid with a white blood cell count greater than 100. So SVP is greater than 250. Uh, peritonitis in these patients is just greater than 100, and it's usually neutrophil predominant. Again, this is going to be caused mostly by gram, uh, actually gram-positive organisms, not gram-negative despite it being the gut. Cons, Staph aureus, VRE, um, very rarely for this to, very rare for this to be E. coli. And in this case, they would recommend for gram-positive coverage, bank or cephalosporin, and Again, gram-negative, a third-generation cephalosporin or gent. So basically, vank and gent or vank and a third-generation cephalosporin will cover you for dialysis patients, empiric antibiotics. And then do you guys have a lot of these patients? We've got a, a dedicated nurse that will come in because they do not want you touching their peritoneal dialysis site. I don't know if you guys have something, if you have enough patients with this to warrant having a dedicated nurse, but it needs to be done very sterilely, very carefully. Because, you know, if they've got, you know, kind of like one shot at this peritoneal dialysis and if it gets contaminated, then it's done, you know, and, and the patient's going to have to move on to like hemodialysis. So we are, you know, under no circumstances supposed to touch it or draw fluids from it. The, the nurses come in and do it. What do you guys do here? Do you, do you have these patients? You have a nurse too? Okay. Oh, really? So you just do it yourself? Okay, you don't even worry about it. Okay, great. So just to wrap up, I'm just going to briefly compare hemodialysis to uh, peritoneal dialysis. They've been found to have uh, similar survival rates. Um, patients with peritoneal dialysis average like 16.6 .6 hospital days per year versus hemodialysis is 14.2, so it's like two and a half day um, hospitalization difference. Similar costs, peritoneal dialysis is $41,000 a year, hemodialysis is $46,000 a year. The advantages of hemodialysis is really high clearance, you only have to you know, be dialyzed three days out of the week. 
there's no glucose load um, versus peritoneal dialysis, the fluid that they infuse into the peritoneum actually has a lot of glucose in it, which could be tough in a diabetic patient. Um, hemodialysis is not, isn't going to obviously predispose you to abdominal hernias. Um, and then the disadvantages with it, with large fluid shifts, um, can make your blood pressure kind of all over the place. And also, you know, we worry about hyperkalemia, obviously unsteady chemistry values. And then these patients have, you know, very little control over their life. They're, you know, every three days a week for the rest of their life, they've always got to go to dialysis. Uh, versus peritoneal dialysis where patients, because it's done daily, more stable uh, chemistry values, the patient can control when they're dialyzed, you know, it kind of allows them freedom of choice in their life. Blood pressure is actually much easier to control in these patients. And then um, say if you've got a heart failure patient where any rapid fluid uh, shifts is going to cause a lot of problems, peritoneal dialysis is actually easier on these patients. As we talked about earlier, there's a risk of the high glucose load and patients with Diabetes also can give you per, uh, peritonitis, obviously, and abdominal hernias. So that's it. Any questions you guys have? <laughs>